Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 52, Insular Superterrain. Thanks for listening. Well, it's mid-November, and it's been a while. Kind of, kind of told you that <laughs> uh, in the last episode that uh, I was busy with an academic quarter and was very busy with this weekend live streams uh, business that I'll be telling you more about in a second. Uh, but the reason I'm here with you today here in mid-November is because the academic quarter has just finished. And that's early for us. We moved our academic quarter up two weeks and to be done by Thanksgiving time here in the U.S. And that was all in, in planning for um, expected virus numbers to go up in mid-November, and sure enough, the experts were right. Uh, Washington State has been doing well compared to the rest of our country, but anyway, if you're listening in places that are uh, hot zones in mid-November with the virus, I hope you're doing well. And for everybody else around the world, uh, we're hoping for the best here in the coming weeks and months with the coronavirus that uh, apparently is continuing into 2021. Wow. Okay. Well, we don't need to dwell on that. Uh, hopefully this podcast and other things online are a chance for you to get your mind off of more serious matters. And in this case, it's a geology audio podcast. And uh, I, I've been busy with the live streams, and that's video on my YouTube channel, an exotic terrain A to Z series. And you've heard past audio podcast episodes, I presume, so you know kind of what's up. I assume you've seen a couple of those uh, from my backyard, Nick from Home, they're called. Um, but I guess I'll go ahead and assume you haven't, even though I'm guessing many of you have. But to really work as an audio podcast, I think I'm just going to assume that you haven't seen anything um, with the live streams. And I'm just kind of sharing in this audio form what I've been learning this fall. It has been tremendously exciting, I must say. Uh, exciting, satisfying, a uh, sense of relief. Forgive me if I'm repeating myself from from past episodes here, but... It continues to be a good thing for me and I think for the viewers as well. And they all exist in replay form if you want to go back. Uh, but the last time I did one of these audio sessions was a month ago and, <laughs> and I was uh, sharing with you the details that I had recently learned about the Intermontane Superterrain up in British Columbia now. And I didn't go back and listen to that one. Sometimes I do that when I get ready to record one of these down here in the basement in the squeaky chair studio next to the uh, litter box, quite literally, by the way. Um, but off the top of my head, I recall that the big date for the Intermontane Superterrain, the last episode, was 170 million years ago. And you're like, oh, so some rocks were created 170 million years ago? Absolutely not. We stress that there's a difference between age of terrain material and age of accretion. And just to get you back in the flow, the intermontane superterrain 
was truly a super terrain. It was three separate exotic terrains that got stitched together out in the ocean somewhere and then came in as a uh, three-headed monster, I don't know, 170 million years ago um, and got added to old North America, intermontane superterrain. So what are those three uh, individual terrains? Again, review, Quinellia, Cache Creek, and Stikinia. And if you are wanting to learn more about those, you can go back to the previous episode, which is what? I guess that's episode 51 of this series. This is episode 52, damn it, and we're moving on. And so I would like to talk about the second and final super terrain that really essentially completes the job of building the province of British Columbia. And uh, parenthetically, there's a reason that I was I started up in British Columbia. It felt like, first of all, I didn't know anything about what was going on up there. Second of all, there, just looking at an exotic terrain map of the American West, um, the terrain story looks pretty simple up there. Five big terrains being accreted in two major chapters. So we're talking about the second major accretion chapter in this episode, the insular superterrain. Let's not screw around. What's the date here? A hundred. One hundred million years ago is the accretion of the insular superterrain. And by adding that massive superterrain, we get the coastline of British Columbia out pretty much to where it is today. Okay, let's slow down and say a few more things then about the insular superterrain. We know the main message is we're going to add that stuff 100 million years ago. And like the intermontane superterrain, uh, this is a combo platter that got hooked up out in the ocean, and then we accrete the insular superterrain as one unit. When? 100 million years ago. Okay, there are two terrains within the insular that have absolutely exciting, surprising, mind-blowing stories. So it's a super terrain, and the two terrains that are stitched together to make up the insular are the Alexander terrain and the Rangelia terrain. Rangelia, W-R. A-N, named after the Wrangell Mountains up in Alaska. So really what I want to do is talk about those two terrains making up the insular, again, Alexander terrain and Rangelia, probably the most famous of all the exotic terrains. And then before I quit with you, I want to also toss in some exciting brand new geophysical work from the lower mantle that gives us exciting, and exciting is actually an understatement, but it gives us an exciting way to view the history of the insular superterrain. Uh, and I'll explain in a bit. So I'm doing more than just rock west, uh, bedrock uh, stories here. With this episode, I'm also going down into the lower mantle of all places uh, to add some detail. Fair enough. Okay, well, let's get to it. The Alexander, and I don't have any notes in front of me, as per usual. I just have my eyes closed here and uh, trying to conjure this stuff up. 
And this is a few weeks ago, I might add. So the live stream continues, and I've been deep into the heart of the crystalline core of the North Cascades. In other words, in the last few weekends, I do these live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. and every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific time. And you're welcome to join us live if you haven't gotten a chance to do that yet. It's my YouTube channel. You can find these live streams and if you're logged into YouTube with a Google account, you can you can show up in the live chat if that turns you on. Uh, otherwise, again, you can watch these after the fact. So I, I'm talking about a few weeks ago. You know, I was back in October. I was doing this this intermontane stuff. Not a disclaimer, and this insular stuff. Not a disclaimer, uh, but just giving you a sense that I actually early this morning I just put the finishing touches on. The Chelan migmatite complex and the Swakane biotite gneiss. We'll talk about those tomorrow afternoon. So if you're if you're catching this on a Thursday, you are welcome to get caught up to speed with us in the live streams and jump ahead to the crystalline core of the North Cascades. Okay. So thinking back a few weekends ago when we were doing the Alexander and the Rang and the Rangelia stories, it's pretty wild, man. If you go to the Alexander terrain, and that's Prince of Wales Island, if I recall correctly, that's some bedrock um, up in southeast Alaska. Um, another one comes to mind, the, the bedrock along the shores of Glacier Bay National Park in southeast Alaska. Now, you know the geography of southeast Alaska and western B.C. much better than I do, but I, I grab a few names here and there that at least ring a bell with me. So that's kind of the area we're talking about for the Alexander terrain. And when you start looking at that rock of the Alexander terrain, there's a surprising range of ages going back into the Paleozoic era there's some in places in the Alexander terrain, which again, today is in BC and Alaska, and even a little bit of the Yukon. Uh, there's some hallmark red sedimentary layers. There's some gneisses, some metamorphic gneisses. There's some other things that are surprisingly old, talking about the age now in the Alexander terrain. And I'll cut to it. Uh, from the work of Joanna Nelson and Mitch Mahalanek, and a few other geologists up in BC and the Yukon, Maurice Colpron. Um, it's now been established, yeah, the leading idea, you know, you know how these things go. If you go decade by decade, there are certain ideas that become uh, kind of in fashion and then they go away. Of course, the data continues to pour in. Uh, but the main message that I chose to tell, and it appears to be the most recent and hopefully uh, accurate, uh, portrayal of the Alexander terrain is those red sandstones and gneisses and limestones that are Paleozoic in age primarily have a bedrock match in northern Europe and northern Russia. He pauses for dramatic effect. So how is this going to work? How are we going to take stuff from Scotland, from Wales, from Norway, from today's Ural Mountains in Russia? How are we going to 
break off a chunk of that stuff and get it to British Columbia, Yukon, Southeast Alaska? The answer is you're going to break off that Alexander terrain. That's what we're talking about, which is one of the two terrains within the insular super terrain. The Alexander is going to be broken off from Europe slash Eurasia, and we're going to swim that Alexander terrain through the Arctic pretty quickly. And that Alexander terrain is going to leave northern Europe, and it's going to arrive offshore of North America, western North America, um, in short order. Now, this is a different global geography. This is before Pangaea. This is when we have these continents that we're talking about, North America and Europe and, and Northern Asia, uh, much closer to the equator than we do now. So when I say they're coming through the Arctic, I mean that because they're coming through this body of water that was between North America and Europe. But we're not at the top of the world latitude-wise. We're, we're, I think, less than 45 degrees north latitude, maybe around 30 degrees north latitude. We're, we're bringing this stuff through the Arctic. I'm saying the Arctic was at 30 degrees north. Anyway, we get that, Arc, that Alexander terrain to come from Europe, get it out into the Pacific, and that's one story. An additional story Kind of at the same time, although I should have looked this up before I started. Please forgive me. In the Pacific, but almost certainly in the far Pacific, I mean, in other words, a corner of the Pacific, the southwest Pacific, the other side of the Pacific, there was an enormous oceanic plateau. And I really hadn't up until doing that episode on Rangelia. I'm switching to Rangelia now, by the way, the other terrain within the insular. Hope you're with us here. Hope you can keep this stuff straight as you're driving or weed whacking or shoveling snow or whatever you're doing, canning, dishwashing. I hadn't really thought about oceanic plateaus much until I put together that Rangelia live stream. But that is the, the takeaway message from Rangelia. There's an incredible amount of basalt that makes up Rangelia. There's some other things, but let's just focus on the basalt. But the volume of the basalt is so extreme. The pile of basalt is so large, making up Rangelia. Today's Vancouver Island, I might add. Rangelia, mostly Vancouver Island, uh, Hataguay, I think that's how it's pronounced, it used to be called Queen Charlotte Island. Even mainland BC uh, to the east of Vancouver Island, that's all Rangelia, and it's mostly basalt. But that basalt, there's so much basalt, it can't just be a simple seamount. It can't just be an Icelander. It can't be a, uh, a big island of Hawaii. Those are seamounts, and they're big. But when you just start talking about the volume of the basalt that's not only uh, at the surface today, like Vancouver Island, but in the subsurface from geophysical studies, we realize that there was an enormous oceanic plateau. 
And you're like, okay, I can't picture that. And I couldn't either until I just looked up Oceanic Plateau and started finding things like the Antong Java Plateau. And uh, another one I can't think of right now in the South Pacific. But if you look up Oceanic Plateau and just get some maps of the Oceanic Plateaus in the world today, you'll see these they're more than mountains. They're, they're truly plateaus. They're like these giant billiards tables underwater. And I, I choose that because they're, they're flat. They're not typically above sea level. Uh, but these giant pool tables, these billiard tables, are, are, are sitting there underwater, but yet, you know, substantially above the abyssal plain, substantially above the, the deep ocean floor of the world. And so pretty quickly, when you start reading about these oceanic plateaus, you realize there's probably a hotspot origin for each of these. And then that gets into why are the hotspots there. And then that gets into bolide impacts and all sorts of things, which we don't need to get into. But the main message from Rangelia is that there was this incredible pile of basalt, an oceanic plateau, mostly submarine, although there are places in Rangelia where you have not pillow basalts, but actually ropey lavas and pahoehoes, in other words, and, and other features indicating that for a time that Rangelia oceanic plateau was, was above water. Parts of it were above water. But the main point is we're going to move that oceanic plateau from somewhere in the Pacific. We're going to hook it up with our Eurasian stuff, the Alexander, out in the water somewhere. We're going to create, this part I don't get, we're going to create kind of another string bean. If you recall from the past intermontane story, we had these string beans, these oceanic volcanic arcs, and we we're going to fold the string bean to the point where we're going to uh, grab a bunch of Cache Creek. You have to go back and listen. Grab a bunch of Cache Creek from the Southwest Pacific, cram it into this folding string bean, and that's intermontane, and we add intermontane 170. Well, according to the reconstructions I'm about to share with you involving geophysics, it looks like the insular is also string bean-like. Now, that's the part I don't get because I thought we had this massive ocean, oceanic plateau. Why, why would it be a string bean, especially after it connects with the Alexander? And perhaps we're back 300 million years ago or even before 300 million years ago when we connect or stitch together or hook up the Alexander and the Rangelia stories out in the Pacific to make the insular superterrain. Regardless of that, which is fuzzy to me, let's just have a nice round number. Apparently there's a couple stitching plutons that, uh, that are about 300 million years old that, sh that show us that Rangelia and Alexander were together out in the Pacific by 300 million years ago. So let's just run with that. So we have this string bean, this insular string bean, massive amount of real estate, but linear. Why? Why is it linear? Anyway, it's out there, and 300 million years ago, it's far offshore. 
And then quiz for you. When? When are we going to add the insular superterrain to Western North America to finish building British Columbia and Yukon for the most part? Correct. The answer is 100 million years ago. That is, out of all this exotic terrain stuff, and, you know, I, I think I'm going to continue doing some audio podcasts now that I have a bit more time and the school session is done for uh, the next few weeks. Um, I'll basically keep reporting to you in this series, in this pod, this audio podcast, and I'll basically kind of get you up to speed. But out of all these exotic terrain live streams and exotic terrain audio podcasts with you, uh, the big date is 100. The big date is 100 million years ago. And I'm still trying to wrap my mind around what happened and all the evidence. But, you know, as I've been in the North Cascades of Washington, I keep coming to this big event of 100 million years ago. So it is the main event, the main event, adding the insular. Uh, but instead of finishing this audio episode right now, I want to spend another 10 minutes talking about what we have learned in the last few years about the position of the insular. And I don't know, can I do this in 10 minutes? I'll try. In the live stream series, I devoted one session to a woman, a very interesting geologist. And part of the interesting story of her, her name is Karin Sigloch, K-A-R-I-N-S-I-G-L-O-C-H, Sigloch. I think that's it. Uh, she's from Germany. Uh, been coached up on pronouncing her name uh, correctly. I think that's it. Karin Sigloch. And her story is fascinating for a bunch of reasons. One is she's a true outsider. She didn't get into geology until studying for a PhD. She was an engineer, computer engineer, electrical engineer, elect, uh, electrical engineer, and, and, and was in working for Bell Labs in New Jersey uh, on cell phone technology uh, like 15 years ago. And then she just uh, read a couple of uh, web kind of articles on her on, online and... Uh, kind of interviewed her, and she basically said, uh, I don't know if I want to spend the rest of my life with cell phone technology. I want to do something a little bit more meaningful. And she's one of these cats who's so bright that she just chooses to do a Ph.D. in geology. <laughs> it's like, should I go to med school? Should I go to a Ph.D. in geology? Should I do something? You know, my goodness, how many people can do that? But apparently... She got this Ph.D. in geology and took these techniques that she learned from geophysics and started making discoveries in the lower mantle. So we're leaving the surface of the Earth. We're going down a 1,000 kilometers below the surface, 2,000 kilometers below the surface. You know, there's a crust of the earth, and then below the crust is a mantle. And, and as far as I'm concerned, we, we haven't known much about the mantle uh, for much of my teaching career. I haven't taught much about the mantle. Um, but to make this short and to the point and to make it apply to the insular, Karin 
teamed up with a bedrock geologist from British Columbia called Mitch Mahalanik. And so Mitch had done all this mapping of the intermontane and the insular, and he had all this essentially quote-unquote ground truth uh, in the world of uh, bedrock mapping in, in uh, B.C. and Yukon and Alaska and down here in the, in the States. And apparently he sought her out and said, can you figure out some of this lower mantle stuff and maybe that will help us do some things with reconstructing where some of these oceanic terrains used to sit out in the Pacific before they accreted. This is pretty cool, isn't it? And again, I don't, I, maybe I should have broke this out into a separate session, but I'll try it here quickly. You know what? I'm just going to, maybe I will. Maybe the next show I'll do nothing but uh, Karn and Mitch. But for now, let me just try to give you the, the headlines about what they were able to team up and put their minds to and how it gives us for the first time. Okay, I'm going to get excited now. For the first time ever, we have some data to place an exotic terrain specifically at a longitude in the old Pacific Ocean. Now that is big. That's big because before Karn and Mitch's work, which I haven't described to you yet, I might even wait till next episode, what a tease I am. Before their work, all we could say was something about the old latitude of these terrains. And that's primarily from two lines of evidence. So this is back 30, 40 years ago. And the early workers on exotic terrains, including Rangelia, by the way, that's one of the most famous stories, is these, these workers, Davy Jones and Merle Beck and a few other guys from 40, 50 years ago, are realizing Rangelia, for instance, is not part of North America. It has an exotic story. Fine. And Merle Beck and his world, and you heard his audio interview a while back in this series, what was he doing? He was looking at the paleomagnetic signatures of plutonic rock in these exotic terrains. And by studying some of the plutonic rocks of a certain age, and by measuring the inclination of the magnetites within those plutonic rocks, Merle and other paleomagnetic workers were able to say, look, this stuff crystallized much closer to the equator. And because how paleomagnetism works, which I barely understand even today after trying it a few times and talking to some of these guys, it's pretty famous in the world of paleomag that they can say, look, this, this, this granite crystallized either 13 degrees north of the equator or 13 degrees south of the equator. <laughs> in other words, they have an inclination, uh, literally, they're measuring an inclination of these magnetic grains in these granites. And based on that work, they can come up with a former latitude, but they cannot pinpoint whether we're north or south. Oh, 17 degrees north. Oh, 17 degrees south. Either one. Can't rule, can't rule one out of the other. You know? So a lot of these reports are saying these exotic terrains are from the south. 
but we can't pinpoint precisely the latitude, and we definitely cannot pinpoint the longitude because of this paleomagnetic work and the way it works. Same thing with old fossils. You find coral reefs. You find other fossils I know nothing about, microfossils, foraminifera, radiolaria, blah, blah, blah. I'm talking Greek now to me. But again, you can say something about the old latitude simply by saying we have to be equatorial here. This has to be warm water. This, based on what we know about these fossils in the past and, and, and living organisms today, we know we have to be near the equator. Again, a latitude story. Okay, now I am sure that the next episode is going to be devoted exclusively to Karin and Mitch. But I can't leave you hanging. I have to give you something. Karn and Mitch's work gives us, for the first time, a way to locate an exotic terrain in the Pacific according to longitude, not latitude. So ultimately, we could combine the old latitude work and this new longitude work and actually come up with some decent maps, which are still in the works, but some decent maps. So before we quit with this one, let me give you a couple of details for the insular that Karn and Mitch were able to come up with. And I'm still processing mentally uh, how we're going to use that information. You ready? Okay. Mm, let's see. Oh, how do I do this without giving you the whole story? Hang on a second. Hang on, Patrick. Um, yep. The main contribution, and you'll have to listen to the next audio podcast. I'm not sure when I'm going to record it. I'm not going to do another one right now. But you'll have to ep listen to episode, what, 50? 53 is coming, and that'll be on Incarn and Mitch. But I'll tell you right now that their evidence is a firm stance on there had to be westward subduction of ocean floor towards the insular superterrain. That's how we'll finish. That's how I can do this generally before I give you the data. I'll say it again. Uh, the mo No, I'll say it new. The, the model that we've had forever is that these ocean... Almost all these exotic terrains have an ocean story. That's the first thing. Almost all, if you're an exotic terrain, you're from the ocean somehow. You're either part of the ocean floor, you're part of the, the ocean subfloor, you're part of sediments that are on the ocean, you're, you're an ocean island arc. In today's case, you're an oceanic plateau with Rangelia. It's an exception to be Alexander and have a piece of continental material broken off. For the most part, you're an ocean story. And the model we've had forever, I guess I'll repeat this in the next episode, the model we've had forever is that there was a huge ocean plate called the Farallon Plate, which was a magic carpet ride. And that ocean magic carpet ride, the Farallon Plate, the old model said, was coming at North America, was moving west to east, eastward moving Farallon Plate bringing all these goodies, bringing all these exotic terrains to Western North America. And what happens to that magic carpet when it gets to the Western coast of North America? It subducts. 
it it subducts eastward. It angles into the earth towards the east. It slants under North America to the east. Can you picture that? I mean, that's what's going on today. The Juan de Fuca played off the coast of Washington and Oregon and northern California. That's eastward subduction. We know that's a thing. That's real. Ocean floor is subducting eastward beneath the Pacific Northwest today. And taking that, Bill Dickinson primarily came up with the model that over the last 180 million years, there was eastward subduction of the Farallon Plate, bringing all these terrains, including intermontane, including insular, including everything that has accumulated along the western margin of North America. Well, there's a revolution in progress, and Karn and Mitch are leading it. It's a quiet revolution. It's a polite revolution, mostly. But I'm sufficiently excited about it to, to fold it into this Exotic Terrain live stream series, and the reactions has been interesting. Um, and so I'll try to say again what I said five minutes ago. Karn and Mitch have evidence from the lower mantle to say that the insular superterrain was out in the Pacific, and the insular superterrain is now added to North America when? A hundred million years ago, but here it is. Not because the insular was brought to North America by the Farallon. Instead, North America moved westward and approached the insular. The insular was fixed. The insular was stationary. I'm pausing because I'm realizing I think I did this with you last time. Didn't I talk about super potatoes? and pota Like I came up with that here and then I actually used it in the live stream. Am I repeating myself now? Did I talk about the insular last time? Oh, my God. This is so unprofessional. Maybe I should get dressed. All right, I'll finish my thought regardless if I'm repeating myself or not. Next episode, we'll focus on the geophysics and the work of Karn and Mitch in the lower mantle. And using their work, it can be documented convincingly to some of us that the insular superterrain was a thing for sure. Alexander and Rangelia hooked up out in the ocean, absolutely. But it was not drifting east and adding to British Columbia, as is usually discussed. Instead, the insular was not drifting at all. The insular was fixed in place, fixed at a particular longitude, and North America drifting west had ocean crust to the west of it connected to North America. Let me say it again because that's the big concept. How are you going to get North America and insular to connect or to, to get accreted 100 million years ago? The answer is the ocean plate that is soldered on to the leading edge of North America, the ocean plate and North, the ocean crust and North America together are one plate. And as you drift North America and this soldered on ocean plate, ocean crust off to the west of it, we're going to subduct the oceanic crust of North America. I know that sounds weird. We're going to subduct it westward. 
we're going to destroy the ocean material and subduct it westward. It's going to slant west underneath the insular. Because there's a volcanic arc on top of the whole thing. And then the final statement is, North America accretes with the insular by North America just plowing through the insular. And the insular's been draped over the front bumper of a westward-moving North American plate since 100 million years ago. Wow, and now i got to go back and listen to the previous <laughs> episode because I'm, I'm starting to sound familiar. Between the live stream backyard stuff and this audio thing down here in the basement, I'm starting to get confused about what I've said and what I haven't. And uh, I guess it's challenging enough material that it doesn't doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt, does it, to uh, to get some of this again? Maybe with slightly different verbiage. But the ultimate point is, I knew none of this. I knew none of this in July. So it's been an exciting time for me personally to learn. It's almost like I'm back in grad school. I'm just eating and sleeping and uh, taking walks and reading and, 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 and delivering this new content. It's been really fun. I can't go on forever. I'll, I'll burn out eventually. But right now it still feels pretty good. And for you, dear viewer, I hope that this verbal uh, dissection is some kind of weird complement to the video stuff that I've been doing in the backyard. If you have sufficient interest and you want to sit through these live streams, which you know are two hours in length, I'm, I can't imagine everybody is watching a replay full for two hours. And by the way, before I for quit, uh, before I quit here, I. I haven't even bothered to look if anybody's listening to these audio things. I mean, it could just be me recording this and then uploading it, and it gets to my phone, and I'm like, yeah, I guess it's working. Uh, I know you can look up stats and all that, and, and a year ago I was I was pretty interested in, in who I was reaching with this audio podcast, but I just don't have the time to look into that right now and, and uh, switching platforms and Stitcher and... Google Play has a new whatever, and Apple Music has done something. Yeah, it's, I don't have the time. So if this is reaching you, wonderful. Um, thank you for listening. And I think we're finishing. Dear listener, thank you for listening to this episode on the insular superterrain. We've done it. We've completed building British Columbia. Next episode, Karn and Mitch and the Lower Mantle. And beyond that, we'll just follow in the wake of what I've been doing in the backyard, which is getting down to Washington's San Juan Islands, Mount Shuxon area, cross the Straight Creek Fault, and get you up to speed to the North Cascades, where I am currently with the backyard crowd. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I love you, and goodbye.